Luke doesn't tell you anything about foot washing. You have to go to John for that. In this scene, where they're at a table in an upper room, something has already taken place. And if you read the Gospels as uh, voices contributing to the same um, event, and without contradicting, which is the, this is the right way to read them, not contradicting one another and speaking with clarity about all that can be noticed in the scene, John 13 tells us that on the night of the Last Supper, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Even the layout of the cushions and the arrangement of the sitting would provide allowance for this. No one has to go under a table to get to somebody's feet. Uh, If you were reclining with Jesus at the upper room on this table, you would be around it on cushions with your feet outstretched behind you. Your feet would be quite accessible. Maybe uncomfortably so. (laughs) And your feet would be accessible and noticeable with however you had to get there and through whatever you had to get there walking among and on. And it was customary that in the home, you as a guest would have your feet washed. And on the night of the Last Supper, what we're told in John chapter 13 is that the feast of the Passover, being near, knowing when Jesus was going to depart out of the world to the Father in John 13, 1, and having loved his own, we're told that in verse 3, Jesus, knowing he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the meal. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel... He tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I tell you, friends, this Last Supper scene for this action to be going on must have been so shocking. I'm not sure what people could have said or what they could have done that uh, would have have, uh, communicated how, how unsatisfied they were that he was the one doing this. Peter at least represents some resistance. Jesus comes to Simon Peter and he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And I take this to be not in the tone of a strong rebuke, but Jesus, really? You're coming around to wash my feet? Jesus, if you're in the room, it's obvious who should be washing whose feet. Even John the Baptist had said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The one who's coming after me is so greater than me, so much greater than me. Peter says to him, matter of factly, you shall never wash my feet. That will not happen. Now, it's not because Peter doesn't love Jesus. Peter has a kind of regard for Jesus that for Peter, this makes no sense that this is the exchange happening. Jesus, on his knees, washing feet of the 12 people around the table, Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. All right then, so suddenly this washing is not just about washing. Jesus is showing them something. Well, when Peter catches on to this part, even if he hasn't processed all of it, he realizes this washing is not just about washing. It's indicating something else. He says, well, then, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Whatever you're doing, Lord, I want it to be upon all of me. Jesus says, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you. Jesus said these words, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And it tells us when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? 
This moment in John's gospel correlates with the Last Supper scene. Do you understand what I have done? Clearly throughout his earthly ministry, they have not understood many things. He has given parables and they've said privately, Jesus, what did you mean? Weeds, sower, uh, things going on, growth, harvesting. Can you break this down for us? Interpret the elements. And even on the night of the Last Supper, when Jesus will later speak of his body and his blood uh, with the bread and the cup, we should not assume that there is a kind of clarity in the minds of the disciples, like it would be for us, who have been familiar with the things of Christ, who are this side of the cross and resurrection, and who don't lack the kind of dim and uh, unclear, confused and bewildered thinking the disciples had in those hours. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And he makes this remark about someone at the table who is going to betray him. A betrayer who is not clean, therefore, because of that act. Jesus warns about the betrayer in our passage tonight in Luke 22. And and we should understand this foot washing in the background because of how I think this will help us in a moment with the heart of service. I am among you as one who serves, Jesus says. How has he shown that? Well, I think Luke and John read together help us to see Jesus has demonstrated a shocking act of devotion and love and service that they were not prepared for. They weren't like, all right, Jesus, can you reach my feet? Okay, here here we are again. And, uh, you know, just right on time, here he comes. Instead, all of this is unexpected. He says in chapter 22, 21 of of our passage tonight, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This adds an element of discomfort to the atmosphere. These are 12 people who've been following Jesus for years. He called them one after another to be his disciples. And we're told in verses 19 and 20 that he has spoken now about the bread being his body, about the cup talking about his blood. Things are going to be broken and poured out. The cross is a new covenant work. And then suddenly, after this really good news, he gives a warning in verses 21 to 23 about a betrayer. But behold, he says, behold, didn't that was not a word he used before the bread. Behold wasn't a word he used before the cup. Behold was the word he used before the betrayer statement. Like, get ready for this. Behold this reality. Asking that they would draw attention to the horrible truth of a betrayer in their midst. Behold the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. One pastor described this scene. Imagine someone trying to film this moment. And the... uh, The scene begins with everybody's hands, close up of the hands at the table. Everybody's hands are moving around. You have this uh, bread over here and plates over here and cups. And then Jesus' voice, one of these hands is going to betray me. And all the hands just stop. And it's a good moment to picture in the theater of our minds where looking down in everybody's hands now, is it my hands? What's he talking about? He doesn't even give more details. But it is stunning that he says one of his close followers who would be among these hearing him teach and traveling with him is indeed going to be a betrayer. He doesn't name Judas here. Maybe we're expecting that he would say, Judas, I'm talking about you. Uh, And then by, I know what you've done, Judas. I know the agreement you've made. We saw in Luke 22, 1 to 6, the reader knows it's going to be Judas. 
And as the, as the words of Jesus are being spoken, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This would have been truly shocking because right there in their close confines of a, of a little community of the new Israel, there is someone who is unfaithful, someone who is insidious in their motive to betray the Son of God. If somebody said, Jesus is going to be betrayed, you know, give me a list of some people. They might have thought, well, i got some soldiers that I've known around in this area. I think it might be this guy or that guy. Somebody's going to turn Jesus over. Or maybe uh, somebody who wanted a miracle and didn't have one and who had just a beef with Jesus and they were going to look for their opportunity. Or some stranger or some jealous itinerant speaker that didn't like that Jesus' crowds were what they were. You might think, okay, Jesus being betrayed, we might, we might conjure up some possibilities. But among the twelve, that's an altogether horrifying notion. The the hand of him who betrays me is at the table. And he says in verse 22, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Carefully putting together verses 19 and 20 from this morning, and then verses 21 and 22, Jesus knows what he's come to offer, his body and blood for sinners. And he knows he's going to be betrayed. And he knows that this betrayal is not going to keep him from this mission. His betrayal is part of how this mission will be accomplished. It's an uncomfortable idea. That someone within the ranks of Jesus' close disciples would rise up against him. Surely that's going to throw a wrench in the whole thing. But it won't. Look carefully at the language of sovereignty in verse 22. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. I mean, who's determining the path and mission of the Son of Man? I mean, it's not the devil that's ordaining this. It's not Judas's plans. And these aren't things that his disciples have put their heads together and said, this is how we think this should go. If anything, Jesus' plans and mission are confounding their own understandings about how they thought the Son of Man's enthronement would be accomplished. Jesus goes as the divine will has determined it to be done. Which means that Judas, in his malicious and and ill-motived heart toward Christ, is part of of the overarching plan of God for the Son to go to the cross. We find here a convergence of those mysterious streams from Genesis 1 to the end of the Bible of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Judas betrays Jesus because he wants to betray Jesus. He's at the, you know, the... Uh, What was it? The high priest's courtyard, we learn from Matthew's gospel, negotiating a price. Judas loves money. And he's been open to the influences of the evil one prior to this. He's been engaging in thievery and deception. When Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, I'm not saying Judas has said, I'm going to make sure that the sovereign plan of God for the redemptive mission of Christ is fulfilled. Judas is doing what Judas wants But it is within the sovereign ordination of God over all things. We must affirm the biblical truths of genuine human will and the absolute total sovereignty of God over all things. The Bible doesn't make us choose between them. Listen to our own Second London Baptist Confession on this. The confession we affirm as a church says the following in chapter 3 of the confession. God hath decreed in himself 
from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things, whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby God's neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom, in disposing all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. This line from the Confession is an attempt to summarize the teachings of Scripture that the total sovereignty of God and the true and genuine responsibility of people are both things displayed in Scripture and are not contradictory. We see the betrayer here doing what he wants against whom he wants for the price that he agreed on. And yet Jesus says the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Which means Judas, though betraying Christ, and though the mission of Christ leading to the cross to fulfill what he has been incarnate to accomplish, Judas is responsible for his actions. And Judas should face the consequences of sin. This is what the woe is pronounced to mean. Woe to that man. It's a warning of judgment. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now, this word son of man is a title. It's from the book of Daniel. We've talked about this several times in our gospels uh, accounts as we've uh, explored Matthew and Mark and Luke. And the son of man title is very important because it was a title of divine authority in Daniel 7. This enthroned figure in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 has authority and glory among the nations of the earth. And Jesus explains that the son of man here will suffer and be betrayed. Now, that's not as clear in Daniel 7. You might say, how is it that this figure, this son of man in Daniel 7, is enthroned and receives authority over all things and glory among the nations? What Jesus will help us notice in the Gospels is the son of man's enthronement is through suffering and rejection. And through the pain of the rejection of one of his own disciples in Luke 21, I've tied uh, this to our passage last Sunday morning in Luke 22, 1 to 6. Luke 21, 16, Jesus says, you'll be betrayed even by relatives and friends. And among Jesus' friends, here Judas will be the one who betrays. Jesus suffers in the chapters that come, or the verses that come, because he is the servant of the Lord of Isaiah. And he is the enthroned son of man of Daniel 7. These are not different figures. Jesus demonstrates it's through the substitutionary suffering work of the servant of the Lord, which he is. That he as the son of man will be enthroned with all authority and rule over all things. So Jesus makes this statement. After he's talked about his body and blood, he brings up this betrayer. Talks about the determination of the son of man's path unto suffering including through betrayal and woe to the man who betrays. Now, at this moment in verse 23, if you're one of the disciples, you might be thinking in your mind, what have I been doing? Have I had any thoughts of betrayal? Like he just left it pretty vague, left it pretty vague, didn't name anybody. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Verse 23 is fascinating. You know what it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us that when Jesus said this, everybody just looked at Judas and said, obviously, 
Obviously, we know it's going to be him. Instead, it says they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. As they had insight into their own sinful hearts in those moments and realized what they might be capable of, it wasn't beyond the pale for any of them perhaps to say, do I have that within me? That I could be the one who might betray the Son of God? In Matthew and Mark's accounts, the disciples are very sorrowful at the announcement of a betrayer. And they seek assurance from Jesus. They say things like Matthew 26, 22. Surely you don't mean me. Looking for some assurance. Jesus, can you, can you just go ahead and eliminate me? I mean, process of elimination. There's 12 of us. Tell me it's not me and just sort of work their way through. They become somewhat defensive, you might say, in verse 23. Beginning to question one another, trying to figure out who was going to do this. Now, surely the idea of a betrayer at the table was alarming to them. Consider as well, it was not just clear that it was definitely going to be Judas at the table. Perhaps this speaks to the carefulness with which Judas had been conducting himself all along. One writer puts it this way. Judas evidently played the role of a disciple very convincingly. Because they all begin to think to one another and about themselves, could it be me? It wasn't as if this scene included them saying, we all know who Jesus is talking about. They don't know. Jesus knows. There is a psalm that is sometimes invoked here. It's Psalm 41. It's the last psalm of book one of the psalms. And it's a psalm of David. Psalm 41 verse 9 has an intriguing verse. I think it shows the shadow of David in Jesus' ministry here. In Psalm 41.9, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's a fascinating verse. Here's David in Psalm 41. And he's a king. And he's got a covenant with God. And he hopes in God. And he has close confidants and friends. And he says, there's someone I've shared bread with. Someone that I've shared table fellowship with. Who has lifted up his heel against me. Which is a picture of opposition, hostility, betrayal. One of David's closest. Jesus, you see, is the son of David. David is a type of Christ. We're not surprised that things in the life of David can connect to the life of Jesus. It's as if Jesus is living out what it means to be a suffering king rejected by people even very close to him. It's right to see the shadows and patterns of David's life in multiple ways across the Gospels. Here's another one at the table from Psalm 41.9. Someone at the table who has shared bread has lifted up his heel against me. And this scene confirms that Jesus is a new David. And Psalm 41 is something that is true even in Jesus' life and ministry. I wonder what Judas thought of verse 22 What an odd uh, statement for him to be privy to. The Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. It's not like Judas forgot what he did earlier. In other words, if you're Judas, your thinking is, he knows. (laughs) He knows. How could he not? He just said it's somebody in this room at this table. He knows. Now, I don't know if this would have surprised Judas that that kind of specificity was even given in verse 22, in verses 21 and 22. Judas shouldn't have been surprised if he had ears to hear and eyes to see because he had been listening to divine insight and authoritative teaching and beholding wonders and signs for years. 
It ought not surprise Jesus that Judas's heart can't be hidden from him. But there you have it. There you have it. I wonder what Judas thought. Jesus knows. And he might even think to himself, how? How does he know? And who else knows? In verses 24 to 27, while this has been introduced by Jesus, they're still at the table and they begin changing subjects. I find this fascinating too because the heaviness of what we've just discussed in verses 21 to 23, you'd think they'd be reflecting on that in the hours that are following. But in the denseness that is sometimes part of our thinking, we see these disciples begin to dispute as well about something. Notice in verse 23, they begin to question one another who was going to be the betrayer. And then it's as if it goes to the opposite end of the spectrum. Because a betrayer would obviously be the most outrageous and horrendous of those among them. But Jesus, what about the one on the other side? What about the greatest? Okay, I mean, you brought up the betrayer. I mean, my goodness. The one who would just certainly be the worst of the worst. But what about the best of the best? Let's talk about that now. Maybe this was just a more comfortable subject for them. But they bring up in a dispute. A dispute. Listen, a dispute... You've probably been part of dinner conversations that turn into disputes, okay? So we're not talking about like something that's just like, you know, light and silly banter. We're talking about things get serious really quickly and there's disagreement and it's like, this is, a, this is an argument. I don't know how heated it gets. It doesn't say. But this is a dispute among them and what they're arguing about is which of them was to be regarded as the greatest, Why would this be on their minds? Earlier, he had spoken in verse 16 about the kingdom of God that this last supper points to. So there's a future reign with Christ. And then in verse 18, he talks about drinking of the vine when the kingdom of God comes. So again, a reference to authority and reign. And maybe they're thinking, well, where are we going to fit in that? And Jesus, of course, if we're going to be at the table and positions matter at the table, if you were on the immediate right and left of the host, you were considered to be, socially speaking, in the more prominent locations. I think it's a way of them saying, Jesus, you're going to be talking about this future meal. You're talking about the kingdom of God to come. You're talking about eating and drinking again with us in the future. And we would just like to know, have you figured out where the ranking is and how what the sheet is? If you could just tell us who's the greatest, they have this dispute. One writer puts it this way. One cannot think of a more inappropriate time for the disciples to bicker about who is the greatest. And another commentator says the greater shock may be that the disciples present themselves as persons so out of step with Jesus' teaching. This is what's consuming them. It's one thing to have this passing thought and for that thought inside to remain inside. But for it to become a kind of dispute that's contagious... Where all of them are arguing about who is the greatest, it's truly surprising. Earlier in Luke's gospel, we've already faced something like this. It tells us in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 46, an argument among them as to which of them was the greatest arose. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For who is least among you is the one who is great. And he's using an image of a a young child in Luke 9. And even talking about the young and service here in Luke 22. And I think he's doing this because in the ancient world of his day, 
Children were not viewed to be great at all. They didn't have any kind of standing or position. They didn't enjoy any privilege. They were easily disposed of. The Roman society's treatment of newborn children and young children was truly atrocious. And so for Jesus to say, here, little one, let me use you as an illustration about coming humbly and not worrying and jockeying for status and privilege like those in the world are obsessed with, with honor and rank and all the rest, it would have been countercultural for sure. And here a dispute arises. In Luke twenty two twenty four, who is regarded as the greatest? Jesus' response is not to name one of them, okay? Just like he didn't name the betrayer with the name Judas, he doesn't name the one that he would have considered as an answer to their question. Instead, he's going to challenge the categories that lead to this kind of question in the first place. See, the problem is not just that they asked the question, but that it was a question that they thought should be asked. It was a question that made sense to them. It was a question that made sense to their thinking that was formed by worldliness. And he says in verse 25, essentially, the things and people of the world worry about these kinds of things. So he says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now, exercising lordship or serving as benefactors, these were important political and social positions. Exercising lordship, this simply means you're someone in authority. Uh, It doesn't mean they would necessarily have to call you lord. It just means that you have some authority. You have some kind of influence and you have some kind of authority that should be submitted to. The kings of the Gentiles would have that, and that would be obvious to everyone. The emperor, yes, but even the puppet kings of Rome who were under the emperor had great jurisdiction and authority. Those in authority over them are called benefactors. See, one of the helps that leaders in these jurisdictions would have would be wealthy patrons who could get out of much taxation by making donations and funding different projects, um, even things that would be named for them or exclusively funded by them. Benefactors are people who were generous with their money because of what they would get from it. And if you were known as somebody that um, was going to be a benefactor that would help with this public thing or with this policy or this need... You could make it to where people became aware of what you were willing to do in your generosity and people would consider you a very important person. You would accrue influence. You would accrue reputation and power. In other words, the wealthy, it was connected very tightly to power and authority and position. And in order to maintain power and authority and position, having wealth was nearly essential. Jesus says the benefactors, the the kings of this world, the people who have authority and have rank and who people look to and are impressed by all of those things that somebody might consider that person's great. That person's great. Look at the rank they hold. That person's great. Look at what they were able to buy. That person's great. Look what was named after them. That person's great. So it was a way of concluding greatness using certain external categories. And here's the surprise. Jesus says, but not so with you. The question made sense to them. Which of us is going to be the greatest? Because these are the kinds of questions and concerns that animate so much of the world. Longing to be great in the eyes of others. 
Wanting someone to look at you and believe that you are great because you've done this or you hold this or you've accomplished whatever. And there was such a longing for that in the ancient world because there's a longing for that in the hearts of sinners. Jesus says that's not how it is with you or what I think he means there is. You might be tempted with this, but in the kingdom of Christ, it's not this way. So it ought not be your concern. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. All right, Jesus, what are you getting at? Let the greatest become as the youngest. That's like when he took in Luke 9 the child and he says you've got to receive this child. And if you receive the child, you receive me. And then if you receive me, the one who sent me as well. In verse 26, he's trying to, he's trying to upend through the kingdom ethic of his teachings. He's trying to upend their poor evaluation of what greatness means. You see, they might think of greatness as being over everybody. And Jesus wants them to think of greatness as devoting yourselves to serve and love everybody. And that's a very different way of thinking about greatness. So he says in verse 26, you ought to become as the youngest. And that means looking at things from the outside, you might not conclude the same thing from a worldly perspective. Since young, since children were just ignored and cast aside and neglected in all kinds of ways. Jesus says, let the greatest become as the youngest, the leader as the one who serves. They would, they would want to jockey for position and power because they could be over someone. Whether they were a benefactor or a king, it was a desirable thing in the ancient world because of the prestige it would give you. And Jesus says, that is not going to be the case with the people in the kingdom of Christ. Instead, the leader is not committed to his task of being over everybody, but how he can serve and love and uh, devote himself to others. Jesus asks a question in verse 27, question number one, and then a second question in this verse that answers it. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? This question is asked from a worldly perspective, first of all. If someone said to Jesus, who, reclines at the, who is the greater one, who reclines at ta- the one who reclines at table, or is it the one who serves? Well, the one who serves would be the one washing the feet. The one serves would be the one bringing the meal. The one who's reclining is the person who would be viewed as the one that ought to be served, the one who is viewed in some way to be greater in the home as a guest or the host or the owner. So when Jesus says, if you will, according to the world, who's the greater, the recliner at the table or the one who serves? He says, isn't not the one who reclines at the table? Isn't that what everybody would agree with? And he says, but now watch this. He said, I know that's what everybody would think. That's the way you would normally answer that question. Answer it this way with my example. In verse 27, I am among you as the one who serves. Without question, Jesus is the greatest one in the room. There is no criteria you could apply that would remove Jesus from the issue of greatness in each case. All manner of virtue and accomplishment. All manner of glory and worth. There is nothing that would outrank Christ. As the greatest in the room, he washed everybody's feet with a towel. One writer puts it this way. The disciples are interested in titles. Jesus offers them towels instead. That's a very helpful and pithy way of describing the kingdom paradox here. The disciples are interested in titles. Jesus offers them towels instead. 
Isn't the one who reclines at table view to be the greatest? He says, but look at, look at my example. I am among you as the one who serves. Now, that's an I am statement for Luke's gospel, okay? Now, John's gospel has a lot of I am statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. We love those I am statements. Here's Jesus' claim. I'm among you as the servant. I'm among you as the servant. Doesn't Paul teach in Philippians chapter 2 that we should consider others' interests better than our own? Having the mind of Christ... Who, though he had equality with God, did not count it a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And especially, and even climactically so, at this Last Supper meal before the cross. There he is, knowing that he's going to die and be betrayed. And what's he doing? He's washing the feet of his betrayer. He knows exactly what's in Judas' heart, and he's loving him. It's utterly shocking. And from a worldly perspective... Somebody might say, that makes no sense at all. But see, this is the point. Loving and serving in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. Devoting yourself to others and to considering their interests. I am among you as the one who serves, Jesus said. We should be like Jesus, loving others even at a cost to ourselves. At a cost to our time and a cost to our resources and cost to our preferences and our agendas and all the things that might keep people from serving in love toward neighbor. If you look at the example of Christ, the worldly categories just get shot out the window, don't they? Because Jesus is the incarnate one who takes on the form of a servant and is obedient unto death for our sake. It turns out that love of neighbor looks like a cross. Love for neighbor is shaped like a cross because love is at times inconvenient and costly. Love requires commitment and perseverance and devotion. You see, to love others and to serve others with a heart to love Christ and love others, it is shaped like a cross. Our service to others is saying to them, I'm devoted to you. But a refusal to serve communicates something also. It communicates, I'm devoted to me. Thank you very much. So I, we want to serve others in the example of Christ so that we can say to one another, I'm devoted to you. And the alternative is to refuse to serve others because we're really devoted to ourselves. Jesus, in verses 25 through 27, really deals strongly with their question by saying the reason this question makes sense to you is the perspective and worldly view that you're taking to the whole matter of greatness. What if greatness looks like meekness and service? What if it looks like care and focus and devotion? What if it doesn't look necessarily like kings and benefactors? What if it's not rank and titles as the world looks at it, but towels and foot washing? You see, this is the way of Christ. It's an upend, upending of the kingdom, uh, upend of the worldly ethics and a replacement with the kingdom ethics. Serving others is a way of saying, I'm devoted to you. I'm looking to your interests. I care about your needs. I care about your burdens. And I want to act. I don't want us to have good thoughts and vibes. I want to put uh, actions and hands and feet to thoughts and words. 1 John 4 says this to us. John writes in his first letter, let's not love with just word, but in deed and truth. I think he's calling us then to serve like Christ and to love others like Christ. In verses 28 to 30, they don't need to be afraid that this will end poorly for them in the age to come. You know, what if they looked at this 
And, and maybe this could even cross our minds as Bible readers from time to time. You listen to Jesus talking about this and you think, from the worldly perspective, it won't be clearly understood. It might look pretty silly and foolish to serve others and to not jockey for position and authority and rank and to seek that above all so that we can lord it over them like kings and benefactors. It, it's odd to think of love shaped like a cross toward neighbor. But Jesus is saying in verse 28 to 30, what if this means you will be with me in the kingdom to come? See, they're, they're worried about greatness, and that could be connected to the idea that he's spoken about a kingdom and who's going to be at the table with him. And Jesus wants to both warn them not to think like the world, but also assure them that he will keep all of his promises. And he says in verse 28, you're those who have stayed with me in my trials. He's gone through a few. He's certainly faced opposition and challenges up to this point, and they've stuck with him. They're in the room there in Jerusalem, a city where he is wanted and where religious leaders want him dead and where Roman leaders will call for his crucifixion shortly. Then he says, not only have you stayed with me in my trials, verses 29 to 30 end our passage tonight. He says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus can say this with a straight face because the kingdom is his. And those who follow him and those connected and united to him, it will be theirs in him. They will reign with him. They will dwell with him. He says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. And he's talking about the kingdom that he represents as the son of David. I don't think he's acting, you know, saying you get a kingdom and you get a kingdom and you get one. Everybody gets a, a separate place. I think he's talking about the reign of God in the age to come. And I think he's talking about what true exaltation and greatness will look like. Dwelling with God as a result of the mercy that they have received. In, in Luke 14, 11, he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And then he repeats that in Luke 18, 14. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It seems like a big deal to Jesus. And then Peter says it similarly in 1 Peter 5, that you should humble yourselves under the hand of God that he may lift you up in due time because Peter heard Jesus teach this. Stuck with him even decades later. He heard Jesus teach this on the night he was going to be betrayed. The idea of greatness, if Jesus is who he claims to be, then Jesus can define what greatness is and nobody gets to dispute that. And if Jesus says it's devoting yourself in service to others, that that is what greatness looks like and not the leaping over neighbor and exploitation of neighbor that happens so often in that world and in ours to get position and rank, to seize authority and to whatever else at the expense of others, this is love instead. Love that is shaped like a cross and expressed with a towel. He says, I assigned to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. And he says in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock. It is your good, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. One of the reasons they might look at the strategy of Jesus and think it's not as good as maybe some of the worldly things around them, is because they're afraid. They're afraid of how it'll look. They're afraid of what they might lose. They're afraid that what they really desire won't come to pass. But he doesn't want them to be afraid. To think of the kingdom in this way, to devote yourself in service of others, it is to serve by faith, trusting that Jesus will keep his promises. And Jesus is trustworthy. The losing strategies of the world at the expense of neighbor and in the compromise of love, that's not going to help you or others. 
But if you will love others and you will serve others, you will display a greatness that has to do with your, your union with Christ and that honors Christ. And it won't be about rank. And it won't be about authority seeking over others like so many would in the world. Instead, it's about recognizing it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's his good pleasure. He says in verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So there it is again. We heard about it in verse 16. We heard about it in verse 18. Coming to eat and drink once again with Jesus in the kingdom. I think he's talking about what, what's he, what he's accomplishing at his second coming. When all things are made new and the dead are raised and the wicked are judged. And he says here that you may eat and drink at my table. You will be there. And if what's consuming their thoughts are the seating arrangements, they have missed the whole point. They're there by mercy at the table. And in the world, all the positions that people get, they're trying to earn and strive for and and have merits to uh, get this and skills to get that. No one's at the table because they've got the skills. No one's at the table because they've got more merit than somebody else. No one's at the table with the Son of Man in the kingdom of God for any other reason but mercy. And there's always room for sinners to come. He will not turn them away. They should come and they should come to hope and trust him. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That last half of the verse is mysterious. Nobody is quite agreed upon among New Testament scholars what that must mean. How do you like that? (laughs) Sitting on thrones. Well, so that speaks first of all to a sharing of rule. You and I are image bearers of God and we were made to reign and rule in creation, to exercise dominion and to subdue. And our state as image bearers will be fulfilled and consummated in the age to come when we reign with Christ. We are co-heirs and we will receive the kingdom and it is assigned also to us. So there is this sitting on thrones that's being pictured here which even his 12 disciples will enjoy. Well, they're not sitting on thrones at that moment. They're in somebody's upper room. It's not even a house they themselves own. They're upstairs and they're reclining with their feet out on cushions. And Jesus is promising thrones. If the way of Jesus leads to thrones and life in the age to come, then you should go the way of Jesus. Not the way of the world and not the way of kings and benefactors that are consumed with the wrong things. Is it wrong to have somebody in authority? Absolutely not. Is it wrong that somebody is a benefactor? Of course not. It has to do with the worldly categories that are driving those desires. And Jesus wants people to have a different commitment. He wants them to be devoted to people, to love and to care and to serve like Jesus. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel doesn't have to mean judgment like condemnation. It can mean rule, a sharing of leadership over or among There are some different uh, understandings here, but in the age to come, there's not more in future condemnation across eternity. There's the judgment of the wicked and then the reign of the righteous with Christ. So this judgment among the 12 tribes may mean some kind of position of leadership and, and service among the new Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel could be a way of saying the people of God of which Jesus has been building. The apostles who are the foundation of the church. And who are the new Israel represented in that upper room? There are 12 of them after all. Well, friends, as we look at verses 21 to 30, there there was this talk of a betrayer. There was questioning of one another who it would be. 
And then the sudden dispute to the other end of the spectrum, instead of who's going to turn from Christ, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus says, don't think about it in the way the world does. The greatest is the one who serves. Jesus himself demonstrated this. He says in John chapter 13, after washing their feet, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is saying, pick up a towel, love and serve others. Be great in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in which we will live forever with our mighty Redeemer at a table that we come to by his abundant mercy. Let's pray.